forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is how a podcast starts. Uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm just going to throw to you immediately and have you introduce yourselves on the podcast um, so the listener knows what you sound like. Um, tell us who you are and where they may have seen your name on their TV or movie screens. And Elena, let's start with you. Hi, um, I'm Elena Smith. Happy to be here with both of you. And um, I created Dickinson on Apple TV+, Plus, um, which season... One is now uh, available for free, actually. Apple just lifted the paywall, um, you know, for everyone stuck at home uh, dealing with coronavirus. So if you haven't already watched it, please go check it out. Tony. Uh, I'm Tony McNamara. I'm uh, creator of The Great uh, show coming out on Hulu in a couple of weeks. Um, and that, that's it. <laughs> And we've seen your name on a couple of uh, feature films as well. Yeah, um, feature films, I wrote The Favourite and other things. Thank you. Um, I was really glad, you know, it was it was somewhat happenstance that we got the two of you together. Um, but I think there's great, um, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of, you know, overlap in the kinds of work that you do. While they are very different, they also have a lot in common. Um, and Elena, I was telling you before we started how much I really love Dickinson. Um, top to bottom, it's just so well put together. And Tony, I've gotten to watch the pilot of The Great uh, and absolutely loved it. And I think what both of these shows do so exceptionally well, and I think The Favourite did this as well, is, um, you know, present historical stories or historical characters through a very contemporary lens. You know, we find the, the thematic resonances with what's going on in our own world, uh, with what's going on in history. There's so much going on in both of these shows. And the thing I'm curious to hear about, and let's start by talking about Dickinson, is how do you pitch this show? <laughs> There's so much to convey. Yeah, well, the the answer is really that I wrote it. I wrote the pilot of Dickinson um, two years before I pitched it. And um, then in that intervening two years, I developed sort of like a multi-season plan. Um, so, so this wasn't like sold on a pitch on like a, you know, snappy, two sentences because I think any two sentences you would boil Dickinson down to people would just be like, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I remember actually like when I first got the idea, which was actually in like 2013, um, I was on my way to a general meeting uh, with some really great producers who didn't end up being involved with Dickinson at all. But, um, but I got there and I was like, I want to make Louie about Emily Dickinson. And they were like, what? <laughs> you know, and uh, but so I guess that was how I first saw it. Um, and then it took four years from there before I sold it. So I just kept developing it in my mind. And then and then ultimately, you know, along the way of that, the um, the project, uh, there, there were these two, uh, three great producers, Michael Sugar, Ashley Zalta, and mm -hmm. Alex Goldstone, all of whom were at Anonymous Content at the time. Now Michael and Ashley have their own company, which is Sugar 23. Um, but they got, like, you know, involved with the project. They saw the potential in it. We, you know, they showed it to different directors, different actors, um, and, uh, and, and finally, you know, it had just been so long and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, okay, we have to go pitch this thing. And then what ended up happening is that Apple had just started buying things. Like, I think they'd only been 
really buying projects for a couple months. And um, Michael told them about it and said, this is something that I really believe in. And um, and we went and pitched it to Apple and then they bought it. So there only ever was one pitch in that. That's wild. Um, yeah. I want to I wanna go back, though, to those few years ago, maybe five years ago, mm. um, between the conception, the Louis with Emily Dickinson, <laughs> and uh, sitting at the keyboard to start writing that pilot. Mm. You know, how did that, how did the pilot story start to take shape? You know, there's not an obvious jumping on point, as it seems like there would be for the great. Um, how did that pilot story start to take shape? And then how did you come to refine the voice of the show? Right. So it's it's sort of complicated. I mean, so I, I got interested in Emily Dickinson in my early 20s. Um, I read a biography of her uh, and just was fascinated by, I think, the very rich ironies of her life. The fact that, you know, she wrote one of the greatest bodies of work ever written in the English language, but it was more or less never seen or appreciated while she lived. And when she died, you know, these hundreds and hundreds of poems were discovered that she had sewn into these secret books. Um, And there are many other ironies to her life as well. You know, the fact that she sort of wrote about the biggest paradoxes of human existence, but she almost never left this one house in Amherst, Massachusetts. And um, and her family story was really interesting as well to me. The, the, the relationship that she had with her father um, was very uh, just, I think, rich and complex and sort of both antagonistic and also codependent. Um, but also this love triangle that she, you know, her closest, most intimate companionship was with this woman, Sue, who ended up married to her brother, Austin, and moved into the house next door. Um, and, you know, Emily wrote hundreds of letters and poems to Sue that would be carried by a maid across the path between their two houses. And anyway, I mean, there was just a lot about it. I think, look, I was a playwright. And so my brain kind of likes to go to things that happen in one room, but have magical aspects to them. And Emily Dickinson was a character whose inner world is so much more wild and crazy than the like real mundanity of her outer circumstances. And I always say like, if this show was a literal representation of Emily Dickinson's life, it would be very boring because she did a lot of chores and sat in her room a lot. Um, But luckily it's not that, it's much more of a sort of metaphorical representation of her life and her body of work and what she means to us today. But I was particularly taken with Emily Dickinson's coming of age story because uh, it, it has been less told. You know, everyone knows the myth of this spinster in a white dress with fully withdrawn and reclusive. And first of all, that myth even may never have been as as true and was a sort of device made up in the 1880s by her editors to sell books. Um But it certainly was not true when she was young. And she was this rebellious daughter of a very socially prominent family in this New England town. And there was just a lot of like fun and like spiciness to it that I wanted to get into. But in in seeking the the tone of the pilot, it really took a while because and I wrote a few different versions and I wrote a version that was much more kind of straightforward period piece. And it didn't feel quite like my voice, even though it was conveying how interested I was in the subject matter. Um, But then I wrote a version that was an hour long, like based on Dexter, where Emily Dickinson was a serial killer. And, um, and she, she was like murdering a science professor who took credit for a woman's discovery. Uh, and then I showed that to my agent. And he was like, I'm not going to show this to anyone. Um, 
And I was like, why? But, um, and then, and then, and then I don't know what happened, but, but there, in the summer of 2015, I actually went and visited the, the Dickinson Museum, which is Emily's house, which you can go to in Amherst. And I had never been, even though I grew up in the Hudson Valley, which is very near New England and like New England. But I went to her house. And when I came back from her house, like, I knew something clicked and like, I knew what the pilot was. And the other thing that actually helped me finally crack the tone, which is odd, but I've mentioned it before. And I I read the screenplay of the Royal Tenenbaums, um, which like similar to my pilot is about this kind of codependent family of like privileged aristocrats who all see themselves as gifted artists even if only Emily is a gifted artist I think like all of them see themselves that way um and more importantly I think Royal Tenenbaums exists in this world where you can't really point to the period like you don't know what period that is is it the 50s I mean is it Salinger or is it the 2000s when it came out I mean it's sort of both and neither because it's like a storybook world that Wes Anderson created himself. And that is what I tried to do with Dickinson is, is rather than like showing up the differences between the past and the present, I'm blurring them so that you lose track of what is past and what is present. Um, and there is a storybook quality, I think to it. And, um, yeah, I could probably say more about that, but well, there's yeah, yeah there's kind of a timeless quality, which yeah. um, or an out of time quality, which Tony, mm-hmm. I think the great has also. Um, and I did the great. Am I wrong? Did the great start life as a play as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I I started as a playwright, and it was a play I wrote um, quite a while ago, and then. Um, just because I know I, I know I was usually a contemporary, I always wrote contemporary stories um, and then I didn't really love period stuff because it was so polite and didn't, it was, seemed quite boring and people were always tying ribbons on their shoes and stuff. I was like, and then, but I read a, I didn't read, I saw a little bit of something about Catherine the Great, um, you know, that I didn't know and it was seemed a contemporary idea at the time because it was very much like, what I knew about her was maybe she fucked a horse. And then I saw a little bit and I'm like, oh, she also kept the Enlightenment alive, took over a country that wasn't her, hers and invented the roller coaster. And I was like, well, I really want to write about that person. But, um, and, and I think because theatre, but, but my voice was very contemporary as a writer and I wanted it to be a play I would like. So uh, it was sort of the same. It was like, well, what's the tone of that for me? And what is that? And then I sort of came at it through language and I came at it through the idea of, um, I mean, we make a lot of the historical things. I was like, why don't I like them? And I was like, I feel like because I'm always looking back at something and I wanted it to feel like Mm. their, their problems were as present as ours are, that they got up and they wanted to kill their husband and then they got in there instead of a car, they got in a carriage, but it was just the same. You know, they felt the same. They had the same. And I was also like, um, I don't know how they spoke. I mean, we have, we think we know how people speak in oldie days, but we really fucking don't in a way. Um, so I thought, oh, it must. Be, I wanted it to be very visceral and very funny. And, um, and and similarly, I didn't. The historical truth of it wasn't that important to me. It's so much as showing a very contemporary woman and a very contemporary person and and it's very unapologetic for who she was person mm-hmm. and and also a very flawed human being you know that she wasn't perfect and yeah. she had terrible flaws and she had great things about her and she seemed really complicated and that seemed an interesting idea you know and that, as well as just the base of marrying the wrong person and deciding <laughs> to kill them right. it's like well, I, did, I, I um I did just go to Russia, Tony, for my for, oh, for really? my for my 40th birthday. I went for a 10-day trip to Russia with my husband and two friends. Um and we saw, you know, the Winter Palace and the Summer Palace yeah. and learned all about Catherine the Great and the tour guide kept pointing out these paintings and saying to us like she didn't like that one because she thought she looked fat. <laughs> <laughs> 
pretty pretty totally. contemporary. Yeah. yeah, people don't change <laughs> that much. Right. <laughs> no, no. Um, and I think you know, uh, there's something really interesting in baked into her character too that lends itself to a TV series. You know, you can go 50 episodes with this character who has flaws, who wants things, who may not know how to achieve those things, but yeah. we're going to get to see her figure it out. Um, I'm curious to hear about the iterations between the original play and getting to the pilot that I watched. Um, well, it took, it took a while because I wasn't, at the time I was very much a playwright who did some TV with, you know, my friend had a show and I would write the show with her. And, but I started to do more and more TV. Um, and I was, it had been optioned as a film and I'd written the film script. Um, and, but it was a hard, it was a, it was a hard sell because the play was split into two halves and 45 minutes of young Catherine and then an hour and mm. 10 of Catherine at 55. And um, so it was always a bit of a difficult sell and the tone of it, you know, there was a lot of German financiers going, is this funny? And I was like, well, I thought it was. Um, so we, so there was that. So I'd sort of given up on it. And then I think I just started to do enough TV that I went, well, what's this story? I loved, I always loved the younger version of the Catherine story. And then I just, I think my wife or someone said, it should be TV. You love TV. You love doing TV and you're running shows now. Um, and it just sort of like seemed, it just clicked. And I went, well, that, then I can tell the story properly because in the film version, I could never tell the story properly. Um, you know, so as soon as I knew I had 10, 20, 30 hours, um, it became, it was really exciting. And then I just, you know, could write the pilot quite quickly because I sort of understood what I wanted to do. And I, because I'd written the play, I already knew the tone of it. And, um, you know, I, so I sort of, it kind of went from there. And then once it was a pilot, it, it all went quite quickly. Did the pilot story present itself uh, that clearly to you? I mean, I'll say in watching it, I felt like for the first 20 minutes, I have no idea where this is going to go. Uh, and it's when you sort of get her mission statement at the end of it, you're like, oh, this could yeah. go forever. I love this show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did. It did. Re I mean, I sort of knew what it was, but I also, you know, it's a difficult tone in some ways. and you are doing like Dickinson, you are trying to do something different within a genre that's very, very set in its ways and very understood. So um, it's sort of like writing that line of getting an audience into it in that way and then shifting ground. And um, so story-wise, I sort of knew the first, I sort of knew how I wanted the pilot to go and then it was just sort of getting it tonally right, I suppose. That makes sense. Um I'm, I want to come back to Dickinson for a second, talk about, you know, you wrote the pilot, you had this version of it that you liked, uh, and then you spend time thinking about what that series is, um, which, you know, is such a fun part is, you know, exploring that world in your own head. But a certain, at a certain point, you have to present this to people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'd love to hear about that pitch, whether it was to your reps or whether it was to, you know, the the to Anonymous who's coming on, or um, whether it was to Apple when you finally did go in, how did you refine the pitch to get across both what this show is, the character, the tone, but also where it could go? Um, it's, I, I, so it's, it's kind of hard to remember now because again, this was in, I sold this in 27, in October of 2017. And uh, in the intervening time since then, I had twins and wrote and produced two seasons of the show. <laughs> and I'm now trapped in a global pandemic. So um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the, what happened. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I will say that I, as the younger writer that I was then, was shocked by how m the experienced producer, Michael Sugar, kept holding off the actual act of pitching. So in other words, like 
When we finally sat down at Apple that day, and I think it, I swear it was the last day that I could have been in public without someone knowing I was pregnant with twins. Like it was, you know, I just seemed like I had a big lunch or something like that. But, um, uh, we, and we had, we had David Gordon Green, um, attached to direct the pilot and Eastbound and Down was like one of my top five favorite TV shows ever. And, I had actually like reached out to David and asked it and he connected with the material, which, which like made sense to me because, or, and I, and I knew that I knew that like just saying this is Emily Dickinson, but it's directed by David Gordon Green was going to say like, okay, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. Like this isn't, this isn't um, masterpiece theater, you know? And um, I think, you know, there was this kind of like raunchiness, like dealing with Emily Dickinson, who's like the, like, we don't think of her as like the least bit raunchy, you know? Um, but in the pilot, she's, you know, literally flirting with death, going on like a one night stand with him and making out with her girlfriend and, you know, saying this is such bullshit when she's told to go get water from the well, Look, I mean, the thing is that this was <laughs> this was a story about my own adolescence. Like that's that's what Dickinson is. But it's just that I don't I didn't want to write about my own adolescence in a direct way. I wanted to, like, learn every possible fact about this person in this remote time of history um, and then build this strange collage of of like how I saw or could project a, a psychic version of myself into her or something like that. So, um, you know, but I mean, I think all writing is personal and, uh, I mean, all, you know, all good writing is personal. And I think that like this, this was a way of sort of like indirectly, um, expressing my own feelings about, um, about growing up as a young female writer in America today. Right. Um, so, I'm sure some of that came across, you know, like, I'm sure that like in the room, it was clear that I had something at stake in this story. Um, and that I had done so much research to back it up and that I had a, a plan for, you know, how, how are you going to make something interesting about Emily Dickinson who nothing interesting ever happened to? Well, that's why it was a half hour that's why I chose the half hour structure instead of the hour, because I saw it as almost like, almost like a bleak, like British comedy where like, no matter what Emily does during the day, she just ends up back in her room again, you know? Um, and, uh, but, but, but through it all, there's this like fierceness to her commitment to follow her, her inner voice that's saying to her, you are a writer, you know, um, that I, I really wanted to kind of undo any idea of Emily Dickinson as modest or, uh, or, you know, if self-effacing, I think that this woman is like, is like Khaleesi, like going after her dragons, you know, but she, she's going after her poems. Like she, she is, I think she's so convinced of her own greatness and yet she's involved as she is in this society of puritanical Calvinist New England. She's involved in this sort of elaborate performance of feminine modesty that is super interesting. And I think every writer is like that because every writer is a crazy lunatic who like half thinks they're great and half is sure that everyone's going to laugh at them, you know? So I don't know. And it's, I, I think. I didn't answer the question, no, but it's, yeah. It's fascinating though. Cause, and I think she's such a fascinating character that you've built that is built on the foundation of the specifics of the real person. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a personal story and it's in the combination of those things that it is, it's universal. I mean, I relate to Emily in the same way I relate to, you know, whatever John Cusack character I loved when I was 20. <laughs> That's so awesome. And, and, and I think, you know, um, like I have to, so, so it's like, it's imp right. It's like, 
There is a huge body of academic work about Emily Dickinson that I never could have written this show if that academic work hadn't been done, which which was, you know, um, all these scholars who said, okay, guys, the, the myth of Emily Dickinson is wrong. You know, she wasn't this tragic spinster alone in her room mourning for a, a love affair with a man. She was actually this radical artist who was in the, a lifelong queer relationship with her sister-in-law that like was sublimated into these letters and poems that are like half origami and half like, you know, weird like journal entries. And she like, she she just... This she she went walked to the beat of her own drum. That's the thing. Like she she really did her own thing, <laughs> and um, and it was the scholarship that made me aware of that figure. Um, but you know I'm not a scholar. I'm a dramatist, and so what I was doing was was dramatizing, like. Hopefully, yeah, like something about, you know, what does it mean to be a young female radical queer artist coming of age in America today? And I think as the show has grown, right, as it has grown into two seasons, and I'm gonna, I'm, you know, beginning right now the process of starting to write season three, it's like, what's become so captivating to me is the opportunity of using the 1850s and 60s in general as a lens through which to look at where we are right now. Um, and so that that's 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 what makes it be able to sustain a television show. You know, like that's what made for, for me, that's that's why this has to be a TV show and it couldn't just be a movie. Because I think I could have gotten that point across about Emily Dickinson in a movie, you know, but I I couldn't do what I'm getting to do in this experience where I keep getting to find new ways to draw parallels between these two periods in American experience. And like, it's so rich. And over the years of working on this show, I've had such incredible discussions with like civil war historians. And I don't know, just like, uh, you know, people who, people who organize activists, like people, I mean, you know, even, even in what's going on in politics right now, there's, there's just these terrifying, overwhelming parallels to, you know, the fractures of the civil war and, and having become so intimate with this character, it's like, I'm, I feel like I really can it's almost like I'm walking around on the ground, like in the civil war, like asking different kinds of questions because I'm like in it or something. I don't know. It, it yeah. makes sense. Um, and, and Tony, I want to ask you the same general area about telling your own story through this character, as well as, you know, doing the research and then putting the research aside. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, I think I'll, you're always writing yourself on some version or your response to the world in some version or, or, in, or you don't, you know, I often, you know, I can't remember who said it. There are writers who know what they think and that's what they're telling. And there are writers who don't know what they think and that's what they're trying to work out. And I guess I'm very much the second part of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the research thing was interesting because even making it a sort of a historical thing, like we did a lot of strange, we did like in a similar way, I think we did uh, like the room, you know, I had done research and then purposely forgot it through the years of from the play to the pilot. I never looked at a thing. So it was quite a long time. So the joke in the room was I'm not going to know anything, knowing that I knew in my head, I knew a bunch of stuff and I knew some tentpole things in her life that were really important to me to tell because they were very much the essence of the character. Um, there was another part of me that was like, I just, you know, I had, you know, some of our young, you know, we did sort of research two strands and one was what happened to her, what happened in that. And a lot of what what was the details of that period and then how, and then we did this other sort of section of research which was, so, which was sort of to do with contemporary activism because what she was was a, a woman who walked into a situation where no one believed in change and no one believed change was possible and so she, she became a catalyst for that. And it also asks the question of it, it's a court, so it's a place of privilege. So all these people are privileged and to change 
the question of she's saying we should change and they're saying, well, why should we? Because I'm in a place of privilege. Why should I change for people I don't even know to help them? And so we that was a real theme in the first season, you know, of why people should change and why is it in their selfish interests or why is it in their spiritual interest um, to change and do you have to change yourself to actually have external change? So all of those things became like, so we did a lot of, um, so there were boards with sort of, you know, this is how contraception worked in 1780 and then there were boards of like this is how, you know, sort of some, you know, sort of real activist things happened in 2010 or 2013 and this is the process of activism and how that works and what the dangers are. And so we sort of worked between the two poles in a thematic way as well as just being the centre, you would, as the showrunner, you're sort of taking that in and, filtering it into your as a dramatist going well what works in a show so you know and what works for her that makes sense to me as a character and but it was it made the show really interesting on that sense and it made the room really robust because it wasn't just us going and now she gets in a carriage and now there's a fight at the polo or it was very much people had very strong opinions because they were very it was a very contemporary show to them you know uh, so, you know, and thematically it seemed, you know, with this, I don't know why, crazy emperor who was very childish and very capricious and sort of that seemed very resonant to people in the room. It sounds like in the, it, there sounds like a real similarity with um, just trying to get the details right about what it would have been in the time but always coming at it from this contemporary consciousness. So like in episode three of, of season one of Dickinson, the, the Dickinson kids have a wild house party when their uh, parents are gone. And then in the mid, and Emily takes lots of opium, but then in the middle of yeah. the whole thing, she realizes that she got her period. And I was like, yeah, I've never seen a period show where someone gets their period. But then we were like, okay, so what did they do? Like, what did women do in the 1850s yeah. when they got their period? And we literally asked historians and we couldn't get an answer because no one knows because it just hasn't been yeah. put in history. So it, I mean, I mean, the best we got was like, they balled up some cotton and like put it in their underwear or something. But like it was, there was no scholarship about this, like, which is actually, yeah, but- I mean, to turn to a more dry thing, it, what I've found uh, when making a historical show, a lot of the times the questions that I want to know the answer to are these really logistical material questions. Like what was it like on the train and how did the train come? And it's really hard to get answers to those things because most history that's written is about the personalities or the conflicts or the power struggles or the sort of sweeping narratives. But it's not about like, what was the day-to-day material facts of these people's lives? So it's interesting, but especially with something like menstruation where you just didn't talk about it. So it's just missing, you know? It's really interesting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the intru- those little details are so interesting because they're so because re- the big scale stuff it is easy to get, but those smaller details that enrich the show and ta- speak to you. Like when we learned what how contraception worked or what a pregnancy test went, was then, like that was fascinating to us and just spoke to the whole world of the that these people had to live in that women sort of dealt with all of that kind of stuff so well, it was those little details much more interesting to us or me than the big scale political stuff which we fucked around with all the time because we were like oh we don't care about that it's boring well well you all know. these people these people living in what we call the past like to them it was the present you know and it was yeah, it was so, very yeah. cutting edge <laughs> you know yeah. so that's yeah. just a funny thing i thought thing. that was most modern people going around I know. right <laughs> um just to get back to the timeline of these things a little bit um tony was at what point was the great picked up by hulu and did the success of the favorite help push that forward uh no because it was sort of pre favorite um Basically, it was kind of like the favorite. We it was just after we were shooting at the time, I think, or 
maybe started shooting, I think. Um, and I'd written the pilot. I mean, weirdly enough, the, the favourite was a job I got because of the great, because I'd written the script and Yorgos read the script. Um, and so they were shooting that and then I'd written the pilot and we put it, you know, they did that thing where they send it out and hope someone likes it. And then we had a half a dozen places like it. And then, you know, and then I had to go, you know, cause it was a bit like that. The Emily Dixon, it was a bit like, so what the fuck is this? We think it's good, but um, what are you going to do? And, and it was also cause it gets very dramatic and dark at times the show. They were a bit like, is it a drama or a comedy? Is this crazy? So I had to go in and just pitch the season and sort of as much as anything, just talk as much as I could to get everyone to understand what it was and what I was going to do. And um, so I was sort of, I had a pitch that I laid out that went for a while. Not that I did it the same all the time. It would just depend what sometimes you would go, because sometimes you go in and you got this big 25 minute pitch and, literally someone asks you a question 90 seconds in that completely derails the whole thing. So you sort of, I just knew the show well enough that I was like, well, I can just talk about it. And, and it was also because I was making a show that I felt was a bit different. It was very important to me that people understood the show. So I really wanted to like get to know the people who would buy the show, hopefully buy the show to know that when I made the show, they would, they got it. Because there's nothing worse being doing a show where people don't get what you're doing um, on both sides. So I really wanted people who really loved the show and really got what it was. Um, so yeah, and then you know people liked it, and then um, in the end, yeah, Hulu was the place we found a home at. And then we made the pilot, and then for you know in England, and then because they were a bit like proof of concept. You know, we know what you say it is, but. Um, what is it? So, you know, I made the pilot and we delivered it and they were great. I mean, they greenlit it in a, four days or something. So um, they really sort of went, oh, that's what, great, let's do it, you know. Oh, that's great. Um, I want to ask, we don't usually get into this kind of stuff, but as creators of shows and as creators with shows with specific voices, it's so, both of you landed on just the absolute perfect cast. Um, and it's important for shows like these to find actors who get it, actors who are in on the joke, uh, actors who hear the music. Um, can you talk a little yeah. bit about finding those casts? Um, I want to talk um, specifically, Tony, first about um, Nicholas Holt in this is giving this wild performance that is like... Yeah. It's like his character in Mad yeah. Max plus the kid he was in About a Boy. Like, it's perfect. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, that was, I mean, that's true. I think, but I think shows like, like casting is everything because you just need people who like the network getting it. You need your actors to just be able to do it. Like, they, they can't, there's no, like, they'll find it. They'll, like, they literally have to be able to come in and do it. And I think on probably on both shows, the pool of actors who can do this kind of thing shrinks quite dramatically. And it is, but it, I was, I think it was, I was in the favourite rehearsal because we had three weeks rehearsal. And I, I think I'd never met Nick and just day one, after the first day I was just like, well, I, you know, I rang Marion, my co-producer, I was like, well, I found Peter. Um, and then we just got on and so great as well, you know, and he's just such a, wonderful person that and the same with Al you know I'd always been a fan of hers and um she read it and we just wanted to do it straight away and I just it's it's a mix of for me of like um just finding people who have comic truth and can move from drama to comedy really easily and you always think it's true like there's Nick, Nick does wild things one minute he's just this insane monster and the next minute he's quite tender and you and all of it's truth none of it's like you don't feel jarred by any of it. And all of the actors, and we have a cast, like our principal cast is like 11 or 12. So we spend a lot of time finding them. And as well, I spend a lot of time, not a lot of time, but I always spend an hour or two having coffee or going for dinner or before we cast them. Because for me, it's like, I'm about to spend eight months of my life with you and vice versa. And I want to know the person I'm now about to put my work 
in and I'm going to ask a lot of you and you're going to ask a lot of me. And so I want us to be on the same page just in terms of approach. So all of our actors were very, you know, we have a lot of English actors who are theatre actors. So they have a very, and Nick and Al have the same, you know, everyone's very, they're real professionals. There's no histrionics. They're very much, they come prepared. They're always on time. They're always not got their lines down and, and that, and they're very giving to each other. So that was sort of the people I was looking for as well as the actors I was looking for of people who could nail the tone, I guess. Yeah, that really makes sense. And and uh, Elena, something I love about Emily's character, and I think this is 100% in your writing, and I think it's a, a possible challenge for an actor to play, is that she is both worldly and naive. Um, she's very much her age and of her age. Um, and I think in finding Haley to do that, uh, <clears throat> you found the perfect vessel for this character. Uh, but you've also built this incredible ensemble around her. Can you talk a little bit about finding the right actors for those roles? Yeah, I mean, Haley just uh, is, she's really extraordinary. There are not many uh, actors who have the quality uh, I, I think that she does and I say this also being a person who has now logged you know between between being on set for every scene and being in post for every editing process and post process like I've spent thousands of hours looking at her acting <laughs> because also like this is this is Dickinson, you know, like it's about her, like she's at the center of it. And, yeah. and I, I just, it's unbelievable, you know, like she's a real movie star, but you know, luckily for me, TV is kind of where it's at right now. So for, for like a lot of incredibly like challenging and exciting storytelling. So we get to have an actor of Haley's caliber. Um, but you know, it's, it's been such a privilege to have her as the sort of like anchor of of the the show and then i think around Haley, um just everything that you said tony it fully resonates with me and and i think also just you know your cast is great and uh like it's the same there is a, a small pool of actors but i think being rooted in theater um and having so much experience in theater like that's that's just you know what made it like i was I was not at all like unclear in the casting process. It's like that person gets it. That person doesn't, you know, like it's, 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 it's sort of, and it, and it is, it is about that ability to go between comedy and drama. So, you know, you have someone like Toby Huss who plays Edward Dickinson, Emily's father. And like, you know, Toby started, I believe he started his career in like in comedy, com- you know, and he like had a right. very well-known guest appearance on Seinfeld. And, but, but like Toby is like a crazy dramatic actor, you know, who can just yeah. go woo, woo, like, you know, and just the subtlety of it. Um, yeah. I, I think, and then, and then like Anna Baryshnikov who plays Lavinia, Emily's younger sister, Anna was someone that I actually knew through theater. Her boyfriend is an actor and director who was once in one of my plays. So, you know, I, I actually like scoped Anna out and was like, I think she could be a good Sue. And then when she came in to audition for Sue, I was like, wait, actually, I think she's Lavinia. And then it just clicked, even though she wasn't really what we had had in our heads for Lavinia. So, you know, it, it's, it's just about like, um, you know, I think, the intelligence um and then of course everything about being a a, you know just being such hard workers and and generous to each other and forming a real community amongst the group and i mean dickinson is especially in season two uh is there's a lot of young actors on the show um there you know so there there does become this this funny kind of like here's this social social network of characters. And then also all these people are actually friends and like following each other on social media. And that's fun too. You know, like I, I, I like yeah. to have like, I think in a lot of ways, like, okay, why be this kind of writer and not a novelist? 
I think it's because like what you do when you make a play or a, a show is like you're hosting a party. And yeah. you like plan how the party is going to go and you like set up the activities and then you invite everyone sure. to the party and then like everyone's trapped at your party because they have to spend months doing it. And so <laughs> hopefully it's a nice party and people aren't, you yeah, know, totally. throwing like bottles at each other. So I don't know. Uh, I love that so much. And there is in in both of your shows this real feeling of a collaborative effort of a group at work doing something that they love. Um, I wanted to ask both of you, either who wants to jump in first, about what being a playwright has taught you about writing television. Um, or, oh, that's you know, great. is there a difference? You must. like, because I, I just think it's so, imp- I'm so glad I was a playwright first. And, and in, in a lot of ways, like in some ways because of the actor thing, like I often, I just think it gives you an insight into this team. It gives you an insight into seeing things created on the floor that you didn't expect, that you respect, so that I feel like I don't get, I don't think it should be exactly the way I thought it was when I wrote it necessarily. I let, you know, I can let Nicole, then I'll, you know, they can do something else and it's it's fascinating to me, you know. So I think... Um, and I also think you fail when you fail in front of a live audience, especially comedy, like you freaking know it. <laughs> and so I always thought it really taught you how to, you know, and David Mamet used to have this thing where he said, if you're a playwright, you've got to go to your play a lot. And I remember going to my doing what he said, going to my play like every week, two times a week for like, you know, it was on for a couple of months or whatever. And it was really interesting because I really did learn the audience um and what and once you got over the destruction of your ego in that process of things not working or dead air or any of those things there's something about it that teaches you about speed and pacing and connection and what's universal and where I don't know and it's not even like a I don't know Elena it doesn't feel like a logical thing to me it's like something you get in your subconscious as as you have the experiences but and I think it is about valuing um like you know, there's a huge team that comes together to make a show. And as the showrunner or as the playwright, like you're the point person for the costume department, the set department, the, you know, um, the music, like all of these, all of these, I get to have such wonderful, rewarding converse. I, I remember like there was once in, in drama school, like I read something that said everyone involved in making a play from the lead actor to the writer, to the, to the person running the light board has the same goal, which is to tell the story. And they have the same, they have the same instinct, which is the instinct of a storyteller. And so in a way, what you do is you go around through all the different layers of process. It's, you know, in the writer's room and then and then in rehearsal and then on set and then in the editing room and then in the like, you know, even with the color, like adjusting color. It's like you're telling the story over and over and over and over and over again with the particular like vantage point of the person who's doing their job. Like so my costume designer on Dickinson, um, we we Dickinson season two, we we went to drama school together and we've had a like working collaboration, you know, for 15 years. And like um we will we will be like so excited because someone's going to wear a black corset. And like, we both know what that means, you know? <laughs> and like, so everybody wants, everybody is part of telling the story. Um, and I think this kind of multidisciplinary approach to storytelling for me, that's what I learned in theater. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, And it also, it reminds me of, you know, we've heard this advice a few times. Uh, I think I first heard it years and years ago from um, the screenwriter of E.T. who said, you know, when you finish a draft, go back and do a pass where you concentrate on each character and what's the story from her point of view. Um, And it feels like putting on a play producing a show is an extension of that where, you know, you're talking to your customer and saying, what's the story from this person's point of view? How can we tell best tell the story using her tools and his tools? Um, and, and yeah. And I, think sometimes I haven't heard that before. The, sorry. 
Yeah, I think sometimes the tools aren't obvious, especially I don't, on our show, like, because I didn't, we did research in the writer's room, but of course the costume and Francesca in production design, they did their own research. And I was always like, if you read a script and I've written it's about, you know, um, some particular like dance sequence or some kind of place where this, if you know something that you think, you know the show, if it's interesting and you think it's funny and you think it might be better than where I placed it or where, then just come back to us after you've read the scripts and go, you know where you could put this and what. So that happened a few times where their knowledge of the world and their, and because they're in the show and storytelling the show in the same way, they kind of come back to you in costume in particular as well, would go, we could do this because they did this and it was really funny. Like makeup mm-hmm. came up with this great thing they discovered where women would wear like horse tattoos on their faces like in you know and they were made of literally made of black felt and they would stick them to their faces on big nights out so we were like oh my god let's have what? horses That's let's have let's have <laughs> <laughs> we like let's do that but yeah. it was but they're all like that's what it, you i mean that's resonates what you were saying Alani, because it is like they're just people trying to tell the story that we're all trying to tell yeah. coming up with cool things you know well, and it comes yeah. back to to something you mentioned in watching your own productions, which is you do have to get rid of your ego, right? Like, this is your show. You started to tell the story, but now we all get to tell this story. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the balance being a showrunner is keeping it on the tracks of where you know what the vision of it is and bringing people into that as much as possible and knowing what, where the boundaries are and knowing what to kick out and knowing what to keep in. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's always difficult. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, you have to continue to be a leader, you know, cause I think that if you weren't, it, I think that if, you know, a show didn't have a person who was sort of the prime mover and was the one with the vision, I think actually everybody would feel really lost. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, you you invited these people to your party because you wanted them to be there. So, like, don't be rude to them. <laughs> um, I, I want to ask uh, before we wrap up, uh, Tony, you touched on this, but Elena, I want to ask about working with your room and um, conveying to them the target that you were going for. You know, you had the pilot script in existence, um, but how were you able to paint the picture, both of the tone and the characters and the story you wanted to tell for your collaborators? Well, it's funny, Tony, you said like they're the two kinds of writers, like the one that knows what they're trying to say and the one that doesn't, but is figuring it out. Yeah. I'm like, I'm the first kind. So, I mean, my, 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 my room of, you know, five writers or whatever was brought together, all of whom were people that I was friends with and had pre-existing relationships with and basically brought in and was like, okay, guys, listen, this is what the show is. There's 10 episodes. They go like this, you know, and, um, and now help me, <laughs> you know? So, um, it was a, it was definitely a pretty controlled process. And, um, also, the room itself lasted for, you know, a, a, a fraction of the time of the actual writing. So it's odd. Like I do, I do think that like we've entered this kind of hybrid space with TV these days because what, because it's TV and you still are, okay. So Dickinson is 10 half hour episodes for a season. So it's five hours of story for the first season. Um, so it's like a five hour movie, which is a lot of work for one person to do. So, and and it's TV. So you get to kind of like say, yeah, we're going to have a room and I'm going to have people helping me. But, um, at the end of the day, like nobody can really write the tone of the show besides me because it's so specific. And also in season one, it didn't exist. So there was nothing to point to. It was not like you could say, this is what the tone is, you know, like, um, So I kind of see it more as just for this show, this is not how it is for every show, but just, but just for this show, I see it as the way that like you hear about like artists that have assistants and that help Jeff Koons make his giant sculpture of, of, you know, animal balloons. Like I, I gave a lot of really specific instructions 
And I had some really helpful, wonderful people who were excited by what my vision was and did work to help bring it about. Um, and, but in the end, like the amount of work and the hours and the labor that I had to do was, was like, was pretty unreal. And I think like, as I move forward in my career or just in this show, it doesn't have to be quite so hard because at least now there's like something to look at, but yeah, there really wasn't in the beginning. So. Yeah. I think that first season on a show, cause I was, was, it's very similar experience about in terms of getting who, anyone who could write, getting people who could write the show mm-hmm. tonally was, was sort of almost, in, you know, it was incredibly difficult. I mean, cause it is in my, it's your voice. So, it, and it's so specific that it's like your voice. And when someone else's voice comes in, it feels wrong, yeah. you know? So you sort of have to, you know, but the room helps you get to a point of like story and research. And then you, you are sort of, you have to in shows like this, I think, just own it to such a larger degree. The actual script writing is your job in a way, yeah. um, which is a lot of work. You show well, running as well. It's it's interesting because um, I think that being in so p- being in the position of the writer who comes into the room of a showrunner with a strong vision, because I've been yeah. in that role as well, and I and I've learned a lot in it. And I think that actually that role is kind of a lot like being an actor. Because I think that, um, you know, the job of an actor is to take someone else's story and like find yourself in it. Right. And I think that's what you have to do in order to successfully, like if I was going to come work for you, Tony, like I'd have to, I'd have to put myself in it as much as I could use my imagination to like find connection with your characters and your story and find reasons to care and all these sorts of things. And I still wouldn't like nail it exactly because I'm not you, but like I'd bring something to it and then you would take it and write a lot of revisions, you know, cause that's, that's just sort of how it, yeah, how yeah. it works. Yeah. But it's how still it like really yeah. nice to have the companionship. Like I'm glad that I get to have other writers and not just be alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, yeah, I absolutely, it does feel, I would feel lonely without them for sure. And they bring so much that you wouldn't, think of and I was very you know we've got these great young female writers who just brought you know because I'm like an old guy so and it's like you know I'm writing about a young woman essentially so um you know and they brought these conversations that were invaluable in terms of then how the show was operated and built and you know all that kind of stuff even though I had a really strong idea of what happened and how it happened and what it was about they brought this other layer that I couldn't bring by myself, you know, mm. that was in, invaluable in the show. Well, and it is, you know, as you were talking about earlier, uh, both of you, like we're, we're just chasing the truth, right? And it's in those small moments, it's in those details that we can build a bigger truth. Um, I want to wrap up, as we always do, by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? Have you seen any great movies? You know, some of us now have some more time to watch TV. (laughs) Some of us do not. Um, Before we get to that, though, I will recommend to everyone, Dickinson is on Apple. Uh, The first season is out. And as you mentioned, they took down the paywall. So you have no excuse not to go watch it. Uh, The Great premieres on May 15th, I believe, on Hulu. Um, And it is terrific. I can't wait to dig into the whole series. I really enjoyed what I saw. So... Thank you both for being here. Um, Tony, what are Thank you watching you. on television? Well, weirdly enough, it's not a drama because that feels like work. Um, I'm watching Alone, Series 3, because uh, where they drop the people in Patagonia, like <laughs> miles from anywhere, miles from each other, and they have to just be there for like 60 days and make their own thing because it makes me feel far less locked down. I'm like, well, that's freaking lockdown. And what you're doing, you're eating muffins and fucking sitting on your deck. Is, this, is that bad? That's this guy's trying to catch a fish. He hasn't eaten protein in 23 days. It's like crazy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good so suggestion. <laughs> uh, Elena, what are you watching? Uh, okay, I'm sorry, but I can't watch TV because I have two 
two-year-olds. <laughs> and by the time I put them to bed, I am so tired. Yeah. And um, yeah. so, but but really, like, and I've 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 tried a few. I mean, I've watched some Sesame Street, um, but but mostly my my media diet is like radically podcast centered. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and like really weird podcasts. Like what? Um, oh, I mean, God, I listened to a podcast called True Anon that was originally about who killed Jeffrey Epstein, but now has pivoted to being about coronavirus. <laughs> um, but it's just like some really cool people in San Francisco who are in lockdown recording. <laughs> And um, <laughs> and then I listened to this podcast called New Models, which is some people in Berlin, like also locked down chatting about coronavirus. So, um, you know, this is a big time for podcasts. Like the one the one <laughs> industry that has not taken a hit right now is the podcast industry. So, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty much always walking around listening to some like weird podcast about like climate change and people and I don't know what like I should stop, but I can't. So that's terrific. I love to hear that. (laughs) Um, Thank you both so much for chatting. This has been terrific. I learned something new every time I do one of these. And not only was this no exception, but I feel like I had doors open for me. So thank you so much. That's so nice. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.